traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Get informed, get inspired, and get connected. CannabisRadio.com presents NCIA's Cannabis Industry Voice. The National Cannabis Industry Association is the only national trade organization representing the businesses of the legal cannabis industry. NCIA's Cannabis Industry Voice covers a range of topics, including the rapidly evolving political and policy changes that affect our industry, news and events of importance to cannabis professionals, and features on companies, individuals, and campaigns at the cutting edge of the cannabis industry. NCIA's Cannabis Industry Voice begins now. Hi, thanks for tuning in to NCIA's Cannabis Industry Voice on Cannabis Radio. I'm your host, Bethany Moore, at the National Cannabis Industry Association. So I want to welcome to the show, uh, my guest today is Andrew Livingston. His title is the Director of Economics and Research for Vicente Cedarberg. Vicente Cedarberg is the law firm credited with writing Amendment 64, which, as most of you know, is the law that created adult use cannabis legalization in Colorado. So welcome to the show, Andrew. Thanks so much for having me on, Bethany. It's great to uh, talk to all of your NCA audience. Absolutely. And beyond, we're not even sure who's listening out there. You should shoot me an email and tell me you're listening. Uh, anyway, so Andrew, this is your first time on our podcast. So let's introduce you to our audience, whomever they may be. Uh, so what's your background? Where did you go to school? Uh, did you do any other work before becoming a pot economist, so to speak? Thanks so much, Bethany. So I would say that I probably came into drug policy reform and the cannabis industry, well, long before the cannabis industry really existed. And uh, I was probably born into uh, drug policy reform as this was... <laughs> This has been an interest of mine um, from kind of a nerdy policy level, you know, ever before I actually got into the habit of uh, trying drugs. Um, so in high school, I really started researching a lot about uh, drug policy, learning specifically about ethinogens, um, substances that are used ritualistically um, mm -hmm. by all sorts of indigenous peoples around the world for millennia. And I got into looking at some of kind of the taboo subjects behind drugs. And this is a period of time where thankfully I'm young enough to 
have the internet to be able to delve very deep into all of the sorts of research. And so I started researching more and more, and I quickly realized that the war on drugs is really the root of many different problems in mm-hmm. not only American society, but in you know our global world, um, causing you know really death and misery for people in the U.S., in South America, you know, in any place where uh, the illegal drug trade um, was impacting people and where those drug policies also negatively impacted people. Um, and so I got involved uh, early on in college in starting a chapter of Students for Sensible Drug Policy. Um, I went mm-hmm. to school at Colgate University in upstate New York, so I helped to start the chapter there and uh, ran it while I was in college. During that time, Really, my interest has always been drug policy, but my skill sets are in policy analysis and economics. So I double majored in environmental science and economics and really sort of studied the intersection of regulatory policy and market opportunities. Okay. Well, I love that you are an SSD peer. We have so many people in the cannabis industry and movement who who got involved at the college level in Students for Sensible Drug Policies. So huge shout out to you there. Um, they are, the, we're the next generation of, of, of drug policy advocates, which is amazing. So uh, nice to have you among that group. Um, so it sounds like uh, you've been pretty busy in the drug policy world for quite a while. Uh, so again, thank you for being a cannabis activist. But tell me more about your role now as director of economics and research at a law firm. What exactly does that mean? What does it entail? I mean, you're you're not a lawyer, but you're working at a law firm. So break that down for me. Well, sure. Thanks, Bethany. And I think it helps a little bit to explain how I got here with the firm. Um, So after college, I I came out to Colorado. This was uh, during the Amendment 64 campaign. And I worked full time um, on the Amendment 64 campaign with many others um, who are also SSDP um, alumni, Chris Wallace, uh, Shalene Title, and and many others. And um, I worked on that campaign. Um, It was a lot of fun and, you know, it's even more fun to be successful. And then after that campaign ended, I realized the opportunity in front of me was so large that I just had to keep working on it. And so I participated um, by attending every single one of the implementation working groups. And the law firm, um, Brian Vicente, Christian Cederberg, Josh Kappel, um, you know, also Mason DeVert, who now works with VS Strategies, but has always for a long time been a friend of the firm. Um, yeah. they, they ran the Amendment 64 campaign. And so keeping up with the campaign really meant keeping up with the law firm. And so as I kept doing work for implementation, the law firm obviously was extremely involved in that. And so that kind of kept my place with the rest of kind of the ecosystem that I was working with, you know, at a volunteer basis, then into kind of a full-time paid basis. So at that time, we were just around four or five people. Um, we're now over 50. And oh so I helped, 
I helped to create one of the first um, full-time, non-legal, non-administrative roles there. So okay. first I started out with kind of implementation policy, and I've got a knack for understanding kind of complex cannabis policy. And so my colleague Jordan Wellington and I, we built out the compliance department. Uh, but as the firm grew and grew and we had more staff come in, I was able to build out roles that really helped my own expertise and, and really um, highlighted my knowledge base in understanding how regulatory policy impacts market potential. And so from okay. there, I kind of found my own way and developed my own department within the law firm, um, really helping businesses navigate what is an extraordinarily complex um, policy landscape. You know, not only is one state hard to operate in, but if you're looking to start a business and move from Colorado to California or from California to Washington and Oregon to out east, you really need to lean on someone who understands how all of these different states interact. You know, what is the best business opportunity for a delivery service or how do you open up new concentrate uh, extraction facilities across the country, because with 29 states in the District of Columbia with you know comprehensive medical laws and eight states with adult use and you know over 40 countries that have some sort of medical um, law on the book, it's really about where you can do what you want to do, and knowing that is a complex complex landscape. Yeah. So so you're. Folks that would come to your firm to not only understand the legal landscape of opening or running their cannabis businesses, um, they they also gain insight into how it's going to impact them financially. Uh, exactly. Yeah. And because this is such a new market, what I always say is that the market dynamics are impacted significantly more by what is written on the page, the regulatory details and the legal details, than by demographic differences between states. Okay, yes. Got it. Yeah, so these laws between states, like you like you alluded to, vary greatly from state to state, although hopefully we can start to see some legislation that is um, replicable when we find something that works well. So, so the idea is that maybe that will simplify if that happens. Absolutely. And that's something that uh, we've been working on, you know, not only at Vicente Cedarberg, but, you know, at something that NCIA has been working on, something that um, Vicente Cedarberg and many others have been working with NCIA to create standards for the industry mm -hmm. um, and standards that can be adopted by states across the country. Because eventually there's going to be federal legalization. And, you know, the more states that are on the same page, the easier that transition is going to be and the less tumult there's going to be for businesses on the ground in each of those states. Yeah, I totally agree. And I look forward to that day. So NCIA's Policy Council, um, I'm super excited about it, as I mentioned. And um, Steve Fox is the director of Vicente Cedarberg Strategies, which is a sister company of Vicente Cedarberg Law, for, law Firm. Um, can you give me a brief, like, what's the difference? What are those, what's the purpose of Vicente Cedarberg Strategies versus the law firm? Absolutely. So VS Strategies um, engages in public policy work. Um, so we do, uh, we work with, let's say, business groups in Massachusetts or Nevada or others to help them influence um, 
the regulators and the state legislators in their state to come out with sensible policy that's grounded in, you know, evidence and best practices from different states. Um, so whereas the law firm predominantly represents businesses and investors uh, who own, operate, and, you know, exist in the cannabis world, Via Strategies helps to shape that world in which the clients exist in. Um, and I work um, a lot for both. So, you know, I do work for Via Strategies for uh, NCA Policy Council. Uh, and I also help businesses, you know, navigate some of those regulations that I'm helping to influence. That is fantastic. Yeah. All this work is necessary. We need folks, we need boots on the ground who who have been through the trials, who have seen what works and seen what hasn't worked and can make sure that these policies really speak to the kind of industry and culture that we want this to be. Of course, we don't want this to look like just every other industry. Um, So we want to make sure that people have the freedom to run their businesses, that they're not taxed horribly, that they have access to banking. And I'm sure there's just a million other compliance and regulation issues related to that 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 need to be sensible. Well said, Andrew. Um, So with that, let us take a quick commercial break and we'll be right back to talk more with Andrew Livingston here on Cannabis Radio. Stay tuned. NCIA's Cannabis Industry Voice will return once we give a voice to our sponsors. Oh, let the marijuana llama tell you something now About a game for your phone gonna make you say wow The game's about the game of growing cannabis for cash Grow the seeds, sell the bud, put the savings in the stash Little by little your empire grows large Put the big celebrities inside your entourage You can choose to play with Snoop or me or Cheech and Chong Cypress Hill, Willie Nelson, Wiz Khalifa with a bong The name of the game is him pink, that's the point Download and play while you life yourself a joint The business of cannabis should be no crime. Hemp Inc. is even hot-proofed by the man who run high times. Oh yeah, get it on Android and I and iOS today. Marijuana Llama out. Got to tend to me on crops, you know. Money don't make itself. Hemp Inc. Are you disturbed by the prescription medication commercials on television and their endless list of side effects? They go on and on and you end up having to take multiple pills to counteract the problems caused by the first pill. It never ends. Have you looked into CBD as a more natural option? At Saturn Ranch, we produce all-natural CBD topicals and THC-infused edibles. Premium lab-tested hemp-derived CBD is the most important ingredient in our products. From topical bombs, salt scrubs, bath-soaking salts to tinctures and edibles, you're sure to find something to help. Family-owned and operated, we at Saturn Ranch believe in and use our products daily. Don't put anything on your body that you wouldn't put in your body. SaturnRanch.com The next generation of vaporizers has arrived. Vuber vaporizers are blazing the way with unparalleled technology for oil, concentrate, or dry flower pens. Providing unsurpassed customer service and expert craftsmanship, Vuber vaporizers use cutting-edge technology, providing a power-packed, smoother vapor with a lifetime guarantee. Experience vaporizing the way it was meant to be. The Vuber way. Get informed, get inspired, and get connected with more of NCIA's Cannabis Industry Voice, only on CannabisRadio.com. All right, we're back on NCIA's Cannabis Industry Voice, and I'm your host, Bethany Moore, from the National Cannabis Industry Association. 
I've been talking with one of our uh, Denver local natives. Um, sorry, let me back that up. I've been talking with one of our NCIA members based here in Denver, Andrew Livingston. Um, and welcome back to the show. Uh, we've been exploring your role in doing analysis of regulations for the cannabis industry and how it helps business owners navigate the present and the future. Um, so it does sound extremely complex, I must say, but it sounds like you enjoy doing that work. Absolutely. It's for me, the most interesting thing is to see how the mistakes, the tweaks, the slight weird variations between um, cannabis laws and regulations in each state can have a dramatic effect on business operations. You know, it's one of those things that you can have a state like Texas with tens of billions of people and they can have a smaller market potentially than a state like Oregon with vastly smaller population. But because what is allowed in that state um, as far as cannabis products and qualifying conditions really makes the entire difference as far as the mm -hmm. business opportunity. And this is an area where we see a huge amount of excitement from entrepreneurs and they really need to understand how those different aspects of each law will impact the total market potential and really the business opportunity in front of them. Yeah, I can only imagine how many different factors are involved. I kind of envision you like looking at charts and spreadsheets and like pie graphs and, and then making sense of it and then somehow communicating that to a business owner that does not study or like even speak your language? Do you find a little bit of like, okay, I need to translate this for, for people? <laughs> yeah, I try to, you know, make sure that I know who I'm talking to as far as their background. Um, and most of the people that, you know, come to Vicente Cedarburg um, who are business owners have a background in business. Maybe they operated some non-cannabis businesses. Maybe they've operated some cannabis businesses in other states. Um, and I always make sure to, you know, ask them, if you need me to stop and explain this, I'm happy to do that. Most of the time, business owners understand what I'm talking about unless they, for some reason, ask about the methodology behind projection uh, models, and okay. then sometimes they get lost. I gotcha. I gotcha. Oh, that's great. Um, so you did recently write an article about what factors in either a medical cannabis or an adult use cannabis law would make it successful, the factors that would make it successful. And as you mentioned, some factors in a law mean means the market's going to be much smaller. Like if there's only um, tons of medical condition, you know, or few medical condition requirements and maybe only oil is available, your market's going to look totally different. Absolutely. Um, so let's kind of talk about that big picture a little bit more, especially as more states are looking into developing pro-cannabis laws for either medical or adult use. What would make a good law that would foster a successful cannabis industry? Sure thing. So it, it, for those who want to read the article, uh, it's on Leafly, um, and it's what makes a medical cannabis program succeed. So it's what makes a state medical cannabis program succeed. Um, 
And there's really five major factors that you need to consider um, when determining whether or not to jump in and start investing or operating in a medical cannabis state. And this will apply generally as well for adult use states, but so far the eight that have put forward commercial programs are a little bit different. So on the medical side, the first thing you need to, of course, ask is, does the law allow for commercial sales? Because if you don't have any commercial sales, you're not going to have a commercial market. Yeah. Uh, that seems obvious. <laughs> is um, that like and- Washington, D.C.? Is that kind of what's going on there? Like, they're like, oh, it's kind of legal, but like, mm, you can't really sell it. Yes, exactly. And if okay. you're looking to open, you know, a delivery business in Washington, D.C., you know, that business is not going to exist for a long time because it's illegal um, <laughs> and you're breaking the law. And, you know, sure, you can try to sell $45 T-shirts uh, and then offer a free eighth of cannabis. But oh that's my God. And, uh, people have been arrested <laughs> for that. So you should make sure to ask do you actually, you know, are you actually able to do what you want to do? Uh, and so after looking at whether or not you even allow for commercial sales, the second question is, does the law permit cannabis products with full strength THC? And so, you know, listeners here have probably heard of what we call CBD laws or low THC laws. Yep. These are many of the laws in the Southeast uh, and some in the Midwest that only allow for certain types of cannabis products. These programs, you know, flour is not permitted, um, but in addition, the cannabis oils and concentrates that are allowed can't have more than a certain amount of THC. So oftentimes that's either 0.3% THC or less than 1% THC. Wow. And and although, you know, the cannabis plant has you know, hundreds of different cannabinoids and different medical properties. Uh, The major ones that we know about are THC, CBD, CBG, CBN. There's, you know, a few others. Yep, Um, on a chart. (laughs) (laughs) Probably right in front of you. So um, THC is, you know, not only medically very important, but is honestly what people use mostly because it's what exists in the plant. Uh, to the greatest extent, because you've been breeding cannabis for THC for a long time. And so whether or not it's for pain relief or sleep or for anxiety or for others, um, it's important to have THC as a component because the number of people that will, you know, spend the time getting their card and ensuring that they, you know, try to find these products and go out and pay what in many of these states is a lot of money um, for a CBD product is just a lot less than if you allow the full spectrum. Furthermore, listeners may have heard of uh, what is known as the entourage effect. And it's really the combination of different cannabinoids, which provides the full medical value of the cannabis plant. Uh Uh-huh. Totally agree. And so the third question that you need to ask is, does the law include chronic pain as an independent qualifying condition? So medical cannabis laws typically have a list of qualifying conditions to which a patient can get a recommendation from a doctor for. There are some states, whether or not that's um, Massachusetts or actually Washington, D.C. under their medical program, that kind of have a open-ended 
um, qualifying condition list that okay. any sort of condition that a doctor feels is more beneficial than the potential harms of cannabis they can recommend for. But the majority of medical marijuana states have some sort of list. And the oh, import- that's interesting. I didn't realize that it was by doctor's discretion in Washington, D.C. That's that's cool. Yeah, they opened it up in the last few years, and I know that they were even trying to open it up uh, beyond just physicians to nurses and others. I, I'd have to check with uh, some of our colleagues down in D.C. about whether or not those changes were made. Yeah, that'd so, be cool. Yeah, you know, it's... And then there, even in Washington, D.C., there was just some discussion about whether or not they should allow someone to kind of self-qualify, uh, which would really kind of be a, a way to open up their medical program to any adult-use consumers. Um, since, of course, they passed adult use in 2014, but Congress has prevented them from implementing it. And when it comes to chronic pain, though, for qualifying conditions in most medical marijuana states, it's really important because chronic pain is a symptom of hundreds of different diseases and illnesses. And, you know, there are many, many people in our society that have chronic pain. You know, it depends upon whether or not you look at self-reported studies or whether or not you look at individuals that, you know, qualify for chronic pain um, from a physician diagnosis, but it's probably anywhere from about 17 to 30% of people um, have chronic pain in some sort of way. And that's just significantly more than the number of people that have cancer or epilepsy. You know, And thankfully, there's very few individuals that have pediatric epilepsy, you know, Dravet syndrome. Um, and so the reality is then if you only allow a medical cannabis program that you know, it's really designed just for pediatric epilepsy patients, you're going to have a very small patient base because thankfully not that many children, you know, from a total perspective uh, and a percentage basis have those sorts of uh, really harmful, uh, but thankfully rare conditions. So chronic pain is important because in order to have a market that's large enough to, you know, provide the revenue for businesses to operate in an expensive and complex regulatory environment, they're going to need to make sure that there's enough patients in demand. Um, And the fourth question is, does the law allow for the sale of cannabis flower? So most cannabis patients are used to vaporizing or smoking cannabis flowers. That's been the method of cannabis consumption for really as long as cannabis has been around. Tail as long as time. You know, edibles have been have been used for a long time, and I think there's a you know a story of uh, British uh, Queen Victoria using cannabis bonbons for her menstrual cramps. Oh, um, yeah. So edibles have been used for quite a while, but edibles are also you know a little bit more expensive. Concentrates are more expensive. And calories, you know, calories. Exactly. <laughs> uh, in addition to that, you know, and and so. Cannabis flower is, is not only the most affordable, but really the most commonly used. Even in states that have well-developed markets for concentrates and topicals and um, edibles, cannabis flower is usually about 50% or more of the total market. So yeah. that's important. Got and it. Hey, course- Andrew, hold that thought. We have to take a really quick commercial break. These commercials are just bursting at the seams here, but we'll be right back to hear the fifth point of what would make a really good cannabis law. So hold that thought and stay tuned. We'll be right back on Cannabis Radio. NCIA's Cannabis Industry Voice will return once we give a voice to our sponsors. 
Introducing 420 Cloud, ignited by MSIG, one of the fastest growing social apps around. The only app you'll need for all things cannabis. Find the latest cannabis news, videos, and stories, ranging from business and tech to sports and medicine. Start your career in cannabis by seeking, identifying, and applying for jobs through our expansive listings. For businesses, 420cloud.com features a full-scale cross-channel network, monetizing high traffic for big data conversion and analytics. Download 420 Cloud now from the iTunes Store or Google Play. MSIG.com is a publicly listed company on the OTC. Symbol MCIG. Cannabis concentrates have been around for hundreds of centuries. In 19th century America, extracts mixed with other herbs were sold as a miracle cure. Now, Apex Supercritical has elevated the science of extraction into the 21st century. Apex Supercritical is the leader in CO2 extraction, which is the cleanest, safest, and purest way to extract plant oils. ROI in as little as three weeks. Our cost-effective systems are fully automated with an industry-leading three-year warranty. And if we don't have your system in stock, we can build one in as little as four weeks. Bringing CO2 extraction to the masses. Learn more at apeksupercritical.com. Four-week build excludes high production systems. Ignite the conversation on some trending topics along the Cannabis Radio social media network. Join our crew of thousands on our Cannabis Radio page on Facebook or at Canna Radio, C-A-N-N-A Radio on Twitter. Plus, look for our Facebook and Google Plus pages for all of our original programs and connect with Dr. Dina, Kyle Cushman, Dr. Mitch Earlywine, Nurse Heather, Doc Rob, the hosts of Gondrepreneur, and more. Connect with the growing Cannabis Radio social crusade at Canna Radio on Twitter or search for Cannabis Radio on Facebook, Google Plus, and Instagram and grow with us. Get informed, get inspired, and get connected with more of NCIA's Cannabis Industry Voice only on CannabisRadio.com. All right, we're back on Cannabis Radio, and we were right in the middle of an awesome conversation with Andrew Livingston about factors that make a good cannabis law from state to state. Uh, So we'd gone over four of the five points that were featured in your Leafly article, um, can you can we can we pick it back up where we left off about the fifth the fifth thing the fifth factor? Absolutely, thanks, Bethany. And so the fifth and you know one of the the most important factors is how many stores or distribution points will be available to patients, because you can make a medical marijuana law and you can allow for flour and full strength THC and have chronic pain. But if it's hard for patients to actually go and get their medicine that they need and it takes a long time for them to drive or they can't have it delivered, it's going to be a lot harder to actually get those patients to spend the money at your business. You know, in certain mm-hmm. states, we see lots of patients register for the protection from, from criminal enforcement, which is absolutely vital in these medical marijuana laws. But even if there's a lot of patients, if they don't actually buy your products and visit your stores, it's going to be hard to run your business. And so, you know, although some um, business owners look at, you know, very limited states, whether or not that's uh, Minnesota or New York or Texas with, you know, only a handful or so of, uh, of licensed businesses and thinks, wow. I'm going to make a lot of money in that industry because, or, or that market because there's so few competi- so little competition. There's also a lot harder to attract customers because if there's only four or five stores throughout an entire state, 
you know, many patients are just going to say, I'm going to keep getting from the black market. And it's vital that business owners understand that we are still at the stage in almost every single state where we're expanding the total size of the market rather than really biting into each other's market share. Because the real market that all regulated cannabis business owners are competing with is the black market. Because Patients have been getting medicine um, that they've been using for years, even before these programs were legal and fully implemented. And it's vital that we have enough stores and attractive enough products that patients you know, see the benefits of transitioning from the black and gray market into the fully legal and regulated commercial markets. Sure, sure. Being regulated, compliant, and being able to sleep at night, that must must be a good goal to have, I suppose, if you're going to go from the criminal market to the legal regulated market. Um, so as we wrap up our conversation here, um, you and your colleagues at Vicente Cedarburg and Holy moly, I can't believe you guys are up to 50 employees now, but um, you're all very involved in NCIA's events and education. Um You and two other of your colleagues presented at a closing panel discussion at last summer, uh, 2016, 2017, um, our our Cannabis Business Summit and Expo in Oakland about packaging and labeling, which is a whole beast in the cannabis (laughs) industry. Um, So let's talk more about that for a couple minutes uh, about the white paper uh, on that topic that's available as well. Absolutely. Um, so this was a project that we did for you know a former organization called CRCR, um, which is the Council on Responsibus Cannabis Regulation. Um, and this organization doesn't really exist all that much anymore. But what it was designed for was to provide um, examples of good regulation for businesses um, and for states to emulate. Um, and it also helped to you know, guide uh, legislators or, um, you know, policymakers from across the country and across the world uh, to see Colorado and, and other commercial markets and how they work. So as far as the cannabis packaging and labeling um, project that we put forward, which was in collaboration with NCIA, um, you guys did a great survey of um, all of your members to see what what their stances were on different packaging and labeling. This was a, a, a paper designed to, as we said in the start of the podcast, provide states with standards that they could emulate. Because what we wanted to do was get the states on the same page as far as packaging and labeling best practices so that eventually when you know the FDA or some other sort of federal um, bureaucracy starts regulating and, you know, working with a legal, federally legal cannabis industry, each state would have to change their laws, you know, a little bit less. And so we delved into issues like serving size and demarcation and what should be on the label. Because the last thing you want is to have so much that really it all ends up as white noise. Sure, sure. And chaos, truly. We've we've definitely seen... um, uh, seen things get shaken up with having to have a symbol on your actual edible here, for example, in Colorado. So um, 
I would love to have you back on the show soon. We have so much to talk about, uh, about policy and about cannabis, uh, but we have run out of time. So I guess we'll have to have you on again pretty soon. Um, and I'll see you at one of the upcoming quarterly cannabis caucuses, the seed to sale show and all that other fun stuff. So thank you for being on the show, Andrew. Thank you, Bethany, for having me. It's been an honor. Awesome. Well, thanks for tuning into NCI's Cannabis Industry Voice on Cannabis Radio. Until next time. The opinions expressed on this CannabisRadio.com program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of the staff and management of CannabisRadio.com. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without proper consent of CannabisRadio.com is prohibited.